It's good to be with you guys this morning. Um, We are continuing our series in the book of John, and we're going to be in John chapter 5 this morning. John chapter 5, and we're going to be starting in verse verse 31, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. John chapter 5, 31 to 47. Uh, John is the fourth book in the New Testament, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So if you've got your Bibles with you, I hope that you'll turn there. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, that's okay. The words will be on the screen behind me as well, and so you uh, can always follow along there on the screen. So I'm going to read the passage, and then after I'm done reading the passage, I'm going to pray real quick and ask God to help me as I preach, and then we will jump in. So here's what the Word of God says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Lord God, we need your help this morning as we read and meditate on your word to understand. Apart from you, we can do nothing. So Holy Spirit, come and help us. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Lord, our hearts are so prone to wonder. Lord, our hearts so often are prone to Shut out the truth of your word. God, I pray that you would give us soft hearts, teachable hearts, humble hearts this morning. Help us to listen to what your word has to say. Help us to know, God, that your word is good, that it is profitable for teaching and for rebuke and for correction, for training in righteousness, that, God, you build us up in our faith by your word. You help us to grow in Christlikeness by your word. You encourage us and you spur us on by your word when we are discouraged or when we are weary or faint. God, I pray that your word would, would fill us this morning, would encourage us and would excite us. 
God, as I pray that your word would give us confidence this morning as we look at the overwhelming evidence, at the, the, the crowd of witnesses that point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that we would leave this place with great confidence in you, O oh God, that you would fill and restore those who are doubting and those who are weary, those who are weak in their faith this morning that you would awaken those who are living for their own glory rather than for the glory of God. And I pray that you would help me. Apart from you, I can do nothing. God, who am I to preach your word? Who's sufficient for these things? God, I'm not worthy to do this. But I thank you for the privilege and for the call that you've put on my life to be able to teach. But I need your help. Because I can't do it in my strength. I can't change a single person here. Lord, I want people to hear from you and to hear your word. So I pray that, God, you would do that by the power of your spirit this morning. And that you would work through me a weak vessel. That as your word is read, God, that it would fall on good soil. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I want to go ahead and recap the setting and just help us get our minds around where we're at and, and what we just read. So uh, we've been in John 5 for the last two weeks. This is the third week, and this is the last week we'll be in John chapter 5. And if you'll remember, uh, what happened in the beginning of John 5 is that Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years on the Sabbath. And he, uh, by doing so, he challenged the, uh, the, the Jewish authorities uh, he challenged their authority by healing this man on the Sabbath, and he was making himself equal with God. And so John chapter 5 is where the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities really starts to, to heat up. And verse 18 of John 5 really encapsulates, I think, this conflict. We read it last week, and I want to read it again. Here's what it says. It says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so this is really the big question upon which the entire gospel of John hinges. Is Jesus the son of God? Or is he a blasphemer? Is he a poser? Is he a liar? Throughout John's gospel, there's this thread that kind of runs through the book of John, uh, and its theologians call it the trial motif. There's this conflict between Jesus and his opponents that is ongoing. And so the world, led by the Jewish leaders, consistently attempted to put Jesus on trial. They demanded proof that he was who he said he was. They demanded that he show signs. They accused him of blasphemy. And ultimately, we know that at the end of the book of John, both the Sanhedrin and Pontius Pilate collaborated to try and to condemn Jesus to death on a cross. But the irony that's running throughout this Gospel of John is that while the world thinks that they are putting Jesus on trial, it's actually the world that is being put on trial by God. The world condemns Jesus of being guilty of blasphemy, but it's actually the world that is guilty of blasphemy for rejecting Jesus, the Son of God, the one whom God has sent. And John, what John is doing in 
The book of John is he's presenting mountains of evidence to prove without doubt that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Again, remember the thesis statement of John. John chapter 20, verse 31. John writes, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's the purpose of the book of John. So really, there's, there's this evidence that is being presented, and by presenting this mountain of evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, the world stands condemned for rejecting him, even though it's the world that thinks that they are condemning Jesus for blasphemy. So if I could kind of summarize the main point of this sermon in one sentence, it would be this. There is overwhelming evidence that proves that Jesus is the Messiah and that the world is guilty in its rejection of him. There is overwhelming evidence that proves that Jesus is the Messiah and that the world is guilty in its rejection of him. So in this passage, Jesus points to four witnesses that attest to who he is. John the Baptist, Jesus' own works, God the Father, and the Scriptures. And there's actually more witnesses in other parts of the book of John that Jesus points to, such as the Holy Spirit, his disciples, and his own witness. But it's these four that we're going to look at because these are the four that Jesus talks about in John chapter 5. So I want to walk through these four witnesses to see how they bear witness to Jesus' identity as the Son of God. So first, witness number one, Jesus says, John the Baptist. In verse 33 of John chapter 5, Jesus says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. He's referring to John the Baptist there. So the Lord had prophesied through Isaiah hundreds of years earlier that he would send a forerunner to announce the arrival of the Messiah. And John the Baptist was that forerunner. Remember back in John chapter 1, at the very beginning of the series, in verse 7, we read about John. It says, He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And so Jesus says, John the Baptist is one of those who's a witness to who I am. That was John's role. And John identified Jesus as the Messiah. In John chapter 1, verse 29, you remember, John sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John identifies Jesus as the Messiah, as the Son of God. This was clear testimony from a credible source. And Jesus even tells the people who are now opposing him, he tells them, he says, you rejoiced for a while in John's light. In other words, like you guys were excited about John's message when he first arrived on the scene. When John was saying, hey, the Messiah is coming, he's, he's almost here. And they remember the Jewish authorities, they, they were, the Pharisees were coming down and they were being baptized. They wanted to get in on the action. But when John pointed out Jesus as the Messiah, they refused to believe. So there's another witness that Jesus points out in verse 36. Not only is John the Baptist a witness, but he says in verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Well, what sort of works is Jesus referring to here? Well, in the immediate context, he's referring to the work that he just performed when he healed the invalid of 38 years. So when he healed this, this lame man 
who had, who had been lame for 38 years, he did something that was clearly a sign from God, that was miraculous. This was not something that just anybody could do. Clearly this bore witness that Jesus was the Son of God. In Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, he actually sent some of his disciples to go and to make sure that Jesus was the Messiah. He was having some second guesses. He was kind of like, he didn't want to like spend his ministry pointing to Jesus as the Messiah and to be mistaken. So for whatever reason, he was having some doubts about that. And so John's disciples come and they say to Jesus, are you the one to whom we've been looking or should we look for another? And this is what Jesus says. He says, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So Jesus' works clearly testified to his identity as the Son of God. And today, church, we have even greater reason to believe that Jesus is God because we live on the other side of the resurrection. We know about the greatest work that Jesus ever did, which is he raised himself from the grave three days later. And hundreds and hundreds of witnesses saw him alive. I mean, Jesus even called his own shot. He said multiple times before he went to the cross, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed over into the hands of men. He will be crucified, buried, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. And that's exactly what happened. His resurrection proves that he is who he says he is, the Son of God. You won't find his body anywhere. His tomb was empty. Go and study the evidence and go and look at the facts and you will find that the only plausible conclusion is that Jesus is alive. Witness number three, Jesus points out in verse 37. He says, okay, that's not enough witnesses for you. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And we see this in Matthew chapter 3 at Jesus' baptism. At Jesus' baptism, the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And John the Baptist sees the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descend like a dove on Jesus. And not only did the Father bear witness at Jesus' baptism, by the way, but really the Father bore witness to Jesus being His Son throughout all of Jesus' ministry. And remember last week we talked about how Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus said, the Father shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. So the Father bore witness to Jesus being the Son of God by showing Jesus all that He was doing. All the works that Jesus did, all of Jesus' teaching, all of Jesus' miracles, all of it bore witness that the Father was with Him. And then the fourth witness Jesus points to in verse 39, the Scriptures. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So the Jewish religious authorities knew their Scriptures very well. They studied the Torah, the Old Testament, diligently. But they completely missed the point. They were focused on the laws, but they were blind to the one to whom the entire Old Testament points. Now, there are a couple of different ways that the Old Testament Scriptures point to Jesus. 
One of the ways that it does is by direct prophecy. There are direct prophecies that point to the Messiah and that Jesus specifically fulfilled. One of the clearest prophecies that points to uh, the Messiah, especially for Moses, is Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses said, he said to to the people of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. This was a direct prophecy that there would be a Messiah that would come, one who is greater than Moses, one who is greater than Abraham, one who is greater than David. And there are many specific prophecies in the Old Testament like that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem or that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver or that his hands and feet would be pierced. All of these prophecies, dozens and dozens of them that were fulfilled by Jesus Many of them that there's no way Jesus could have orchestrated it. Things like his birthplace and how he died and that the fact that people would gamble for his clothes as he hung on a cross. The chances that this could have just happened by happenstance are impossible. There's there's no way that these things could have all just fallen together by accident or by happenstance. There are dozens and dozens of direct prophecies that Jesus perfectly fulfilled about the Messiah. And not only are there direct prophecies in Scripture that point to Jesus, but the entire storyline of Scripture ultimately points towards Jesus. Starting in the book of Genesis, Jesus is the linchpin that brings the entire storyline of Scripture together. The Old Testament is an incomplete story that is completed in Jesus. You remember in Luke 24, after Jesus has risen from the dead, And he's appeared to some of his disciples and on the road to Emmaus. A couple of his disciples are are walking down the road to Emmaus and Jesus appears to them. And they don't recognize him at first. They don't realize it's him. And in Luke 24, 27, it says this. And it says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That would have been pretty awesome to be a part of that conversation, wouldn't it? How does Jesus complete the story of Scripture? Well, due to man's sin, death and corruption have entered the world, and man has been separated from God. And God promised a Savior that would redeem His people and restore creation. So all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God promised that the seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman, Eve, would crush the serpent's head. And the Old Testament climactically builds up to the arrival of that Savior. All the promises, all the pictures of salvation, all the symbols, the prophecies in the Old Testament look forward to this Messiah, to this Savior. And they give a picture of the salvation that was accomplished through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. So when Jesus was born, the arrival of of this Savior was officially announced. You remember what the angels said to the shepherds in Luke 2.11? They said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. That word Christ, that's the Messiah. They're they're announcing the shepherds, the one whom the people of Israel have been waiting for, the one whom the world has been waiting for, the one who we was prophesied about in Genesis 3.15. He's here. He's been born. Without Jesus, we can't make sense of the Scriptures, and there's no salvation. 
how is it that God could be like He reveals Himself to Moses in Exodus 34? He says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How can God be merciful and gracious, abounding in steadfast love, and also not clear the guilty? We're all guilty. Every single one of us. Which means, according to Exodus 34, God's not going to clear any of us. We all, how can God clear guilty people when He just said that He won't clear guilty people? The answer is Jesus. Jesus died to take our punishment in our place. And He rose so that we could have life. That is how God can show steadfast love and mercy to sinners and yet remain just in His dealing with sin. Do you see that? Without Jesus, that can't work. It's impossible. Without Jesus, the Old Testament is an incomplete story. The debt, our sin debt, has been paid by Christ. That, that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, he says, all of God's promises find their yes in Christ. What does he mean? He means that Jesus is the linchpin that unlocks all the promises of God. The reason you can claim promises in the Old Testament is because of Jesus. Because He purchased them for you. He purchased them for the church. We don't deserve them in and of ourselves. Because we all sin and fall short of God's glory. So we all we deserve is God's wrath and condemnation. Do you understand? Jesus took that wrath in our place. That's why all of God's promises find their yes in Christ Jesus. All the Old Testament points to Him. It all centers on Him. We lose Jesus and we lose everything. Has your debt been paid by Christ? Have you trusted in Him? I'm not asking you to take a blind leap of faith this morning. We do not have a blind faith. We have an evidentiary faith. There are no shortage of witnesses. The prophets, the scriptures, Jesus' works, the church, millions of believers all over the world, all bear witness that this is true. I urge you to trust in Christ for your salvation today if you have not. He is the Son of God. He is who He says He is. And God is graciously giving you time to repent. Carrie led us in a song that, that, that he wrote uh, Psalm 103 earlier and uh, later on in Psalm 103, it says in verse 10 that God has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. How patient God is with us. How willing He is to forgive. Don't spurn His mercy. Don't put it off. If you do not trust in the Son, you are rejecting the Father. We've seen that over and over again. In John 5, don't reject God's mercy. All these witnesses provide overwhelming evidence that Jesus is who He says He is. And they also confirm the world's guilt in its rejection of Him. Why is it that you think, why is it that people refuse to believe despite all the evidence. Have you thought about that? Why is it? Why is it that people do not believe despite all the evidence? 
I think Jesus puts his finger on the reason in verses 43 to 45. Look with me again. Jesus says to them, he says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Listen carefully to verse 44. This is a rhetorical question Jesus asks. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. Now what does that mean? Jesus pinpointed right here a love for the praise of man as the root of their unbelief. He actually says it even more strongly than that. He says, how can you believe? And the implication here is that you can't. It's impossible to believe in Jesus in a saving way if you love the praise of man more than God. If your number one desire is seeking your own glory and selfish gain, you are living in opposition to God. You are challenging Him to the throne. That's why Jesus says to them in verse 40, He says, you refuse to come to Me. They didn't have an evidence problem. There was plenty of evidence. The evidence was right before their face. They saw the invalid, paralyzed, 38 years, walking right in front of them. They didn't need more evidence. We don't need more evidence today. The world does not have an evidence problem today, church. The world has an idol problem. Jesus says, you refuse to come to me in verse 40. And then verse 44, you cannot believe. Because see, acknowledging Jesus as the king who deserves all praise means admitting that you do not deserve praise. It means admitting that it's not all about you. It's all about God. That's why it's so difficult for sinful man to come to Jesus. No matter how much evidence, one who wants to be the center of praise rather than for God to be the center of praise will not believe. The love of the praise and the approval of man, perhaps more than anything else, will keep you in spiritual darkness. That's the reason the world rejected at the time, and continues to reject Jesus despite all the witnesses, despite all the evidence. If you make self the center of praise, you can't admit your own weakness and your own unrighteousness. Your trust will be in yourself because by admitting your own weakness and your own unrighteousness, you're inherently admitting that you're not worthy of praise. You're not worthy of adoration. You're not worthy of applause. Jesus is. And that's ultimately what Jesus tells the Jewish leaders here, he tells them, you're trusting in yourself. In verse 45, he says, don't think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you set your hope. What does that mean? Well, they're placing their faith in their ability to keep the law of Moses. They're putting their hope in their own righteousness to keep the law. And you have to do that if you love the praise of man. It has to all center on you because that's the only way you can be worthy of praise is if you accomplish defeat. Then people can go, wow, look at how great, how righteous, and how holy this person is. By putting their confidence in their self, they believe they deserve the glory, that they were responsible for their salvation and not God. And guys, the world today hasn't changed. We live in a world that is obsessed by what other people think of them. 
but cares very little about what God thinks. Pride has put self in the place of God as the center of worship. Prideful man refuses to acknowledge sin. And it's not just refuses to acknowledge. Prideful man is offended at the notion that salvation could only be a free gift received by faith in Jesus alone. That's offensive to prideful man. That's why the gospel makes people angry. That's why the exclusivity of Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation which sounds like really good news to those of us who are born again, angers the world. It sounds like it should be good news, but it's not good news to someone who loves their own glory more than God. Because to admit that righteousness is a free gift is to admit your own spiritual poverty. And church, let's be clear. Before we pile on the world, the deceptiveness of the love of the praise of man is not confined to the world only. It can easily creep into our own lives if we are not careful. Take, for example, Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says this. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. See the motive there? That they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, Jesus says, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Even the righteous deeds that we do, even ministry, can be twisted for selfish ends. This is why we ought always to examine our hearts and pray for humility. Let me give you a couple of ways that you can kind of spot check yourself for a love of the praise of man in your own life. It's a couple of questions just to kind of ask yourself. Maybe I'd encourage you even to write these down and take them home and, and, and kind of sit in them this week in your quiet time. First question is this. Do you find yourself very critical of others? Do you find, especially of other Christians, do you find yourself criticizing other people, talking about them when you're not around them, kind of belittling others, criticizing their theology, criticizing the way they do ministry, criticizing the way that they're not as faithful as they should be? This is the first one. Second question, do you get easily discouraged when your contributions go unnoticed? Do you get easily frustrated and upset at the fact that nobody's recognizing what you're doing or you don't feel that you're receiving the recognition that you deserve? for the work that you put in or the volunteer hours that you're doing or for the way that you're being a godly example? Do you, does, that, does that really get under your skin? Here's a third, third question. Do you find yourself inwardly jealous that you don't have a larger role? That you, don't, that you feel like you deserve a more important role in the church or in serving God or maybe even at your workplace or in your family, whatever it may be? Do you find yourself jealous of others who have what you think is a more important role? That's another sermon for another time. There's really no such thing as a more important role. We're all just vessels. But 
do you find yourself getting inwardly jealous? I'd encourage you to examine yourself with those three questions this week. It's a really good way to pinpoint whether or not you may be struggling with the praise of with the love of the praise of man because all three of those things are indicators that you're starting to fix your eyes more on what other people are thinking about you rather than what God is thinking about you. And if that's true of you, spend some time in John 5, 31 to 47 on your own this week. And go spend some time in Matthew chapter 6 as well. Read that whole chapter. That I just read the first four verses. It's an excellent chapter to talking about examining the motives for why we worship, why we pray, why we fast, why we give. Now, always bear in mind Jesus' words in John 15, 5. Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. That's a great slice of humble pie that we should have every morning for breakfast. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's really actually one of my favorite passages because I get overwhelmed at trying to put all the burden on my shoulders. When I start to think that it's about me, like, oh, it's, it's up to me to try to, to help the church grow, or it's up to me to try to make sure that my disciples don't fall away from Jesus, or it's up to me to, to, to help you know, bring revival to D.C. That's an overwhelming weight to bear. Or even for you, it's up to you for your, the, you know, to make sure that your children get saved. Or it's up to you to make sure that your marriage gets healed. Or it's up to you to make sure that you're able to you know, foster a good work environment, that you're able to be a strong witness at work. You bear that witness on your own shoulders. It's going to be an unbearable weight. Wake up every morning going, John 15, 5, Apart from me, you can do nothing, says Jesus. And then fall into his gracious arms and let him empower you by his grace. Don't try to do it in your own strength. You can't bear that load. And it will lead to pride in your life if you try. The good news is this morning is that if you're here, like if you've been living for the praise of man, God is gracious. I've been there too. I've been through seasons in my ministry where I've str even struggled with comparing myself to other pastors or preachers or worrying about what, what if people think I'm doing a good job of preaching sermons. It's such a freeing reminder to know that God calls us to faithfulness and He provides the fruitfulness. Okay? He provides the fruitfulness. Now, what about you? What about those of you who maybe you're here and you've been living your entire life for self? So, humility is the antidote to self exaltation. Humility admits, I am not worthy of all glory and praise, I am a sinner. I need grace. And the humble are those who will receive that grace. Friends, if you have never truly humbled yourself and recognized your own spiritual poverty this morning, I plead with you and beseech you to be honest with yourself and to open your heart to God and to His Word right now. Don't stay in the foolishness of pride. Don't stay in the foolishness of self-righteousness. Jesus says in Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You must become poor in spirit. You must recognize your spiritual poverty. What does that mean? You can bring nothing to God that could earn you salvation or that could contribute in any way to your salvation. As R.C. Sproul used to say, the only thing that you contribute to your salvation is your sin. That's it. It's the sin that makes you need salvation in the first place. That's all we can bring. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling. As long as you refuse to humble yourself, you won't see Jesus as beautiful. What you're going to see him as is you're going to see him as a challenger and a threat to the idols that you love. 
He'll be, a, he'll be a threat to you, the real Jesus. You might be able to concoct in your mind this different Jesus that's not the Jesus of the Bible that's cool with you and your idols, but that's a Jesus of your own making and of your own imagination. The Jesus of the Bible demands your allegiance and your worship. He demands your heart. He demands that you humble yourself before him, that you be poor in spirit and recognize that you bring nothing to the table of salvation, that you are completely and 100% dependent on grace from him. That is the Jesus of the Bible. That is the God, the God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. That Jesus is a threat to those who look to themselves for righteousness. And Jesus came proclaiming, repent and believe the gospel. And that's threatening language to someone who loves the praise of man. That's ultimately why the Jews, represented by Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Gentiles, represented by Pontius Pilate, collaborated together in John 18 to put Jesus on the cross. What do you mean, repent? Get behind us with that repent talk. Jesus stood between them and what they loved, so Jesus had to go. But for those of us who are poor in spirit, for those of us who recognize our spiritual poverty, Jesus is not a threat. Jesus is a beautiful sight indeed. He is a wonderful Savior. He accomplished on our behalf what we never could. He perfectly fulfilled the law where we failed. He took the curse of the law that we rightly deserved. And He has given us His righteousness as a gift. And that gift means that we are free. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says. There is no way you can mess that up if you are in Christ. That is amazing news. I want to close with a couple of points of application. As we think about all the evidence that John has presented us here in John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47, the four witnesses that Jesus points to. We've seen this morning that it's pretty clear, it's pretty evident, that there's overwhelming evidence that proves that Jesus is the Messiah and that the world is guilty in its rejection of Him. So how does this apply today to believers here in this room? I think, first of all, we need to remember that we are to be witnesses today with our lives and our words. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, right before Jesus ascended into heaven, He said to His disciples, He said, You will be My witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. John the Baptist came as a forerunner, as a witness. Jesus' works bear witness to His identity as the Son of God. God the Father bears witness. The Scriptures bear witness. The Holy Spirit bears witness. And we as the church bear witness that Jesus is the Son of God. First of all, by our, by our lives, by the way that we live our lives. When we're born again, we walk in newness of life. The Spirit of Christ dwells within us, causing the fruit of the Spirit to be produced in our lives. Jesus says in Matthew 5, He says, You are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Does the way that you live your life bear witness to the transforming power of the gospel? When people observe your life, is your life a witness 
to this, to the fact that this is true, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God. When people hear how you talk, or when they see what you watch on TV, or when they observe your attitude, or when they see where you go, does it point to Jesus? As God's people, we are called to live set-apart lives. So the little things matter. Even the things that don't appear to hurt anyone else ultimately reflect back upon the gospel. So, just to make this really practical, if you're a Christian, you claim to be a Christian, but you love watching and talking about TV shows that are centered around sexual immorality and violence, that sends a very confusing message. It sends a very confusing message. Your lifestyle is saying something different than the witness that you're bearing with your lips. The way that you live your life ought to bear witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that He's made you new, that His Spirit dwells in you, that you're growing in righteousness. It doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means that you're going to have a growing hatred for sin and for the things of the world and the growing desire to honor and please God with your life. Yes, there's grace when we fall short, but we can't just continue to live and celebrate the things that put Jesus on the cross, brothers and sisters. We can't live lives that are indistinguishable from the world. We can't celebrate what the world celebrates when we know that the world hates the light. So let's live lives that bear witness to Jesus' transforming grace and power, and then let's also proclaim Jesus' transforming grace and power with our lips. This is why the second part of Pillar DC's mission statement is we help people know Jesus and what? Make Him known. Absolutely. That's what a witness does. They talk. They bear witness. They point to the truth. We live in a world blinded in its pursuit of the glory of man. We live in a world blinded by its desire to seek glory for self, to center their lives around self. And our world desperately needs bold Christians who will cry out, Stop! This is not the way. You are heading for destruction. Look to Jesus. That's what a witness does. And that's the privilege and the joy that God has given us. The great commission Jesus gave the church is to go and make disciples so that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will glorify God as they were created to do. But remember, as we go, as we bear witness, that evidence alone will not save those that you witness to. Remember, we just learned that a few minutes ago. Only God can save people by the transforming power of His Spirit. Okay? Our role is to simply go and to bear witness. Last point of application. So we're to be witnesses with our lives and words. And lastly, we also can expect hostility from the world just like Jesus faced. So what we're going to see as we continue working through John is that the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish authorities and also the Gentile authorities represented by Pontius Pilate is going to continue to escalate as we walk through John. It's going to become more and more contentious because the darkness hates the light, like we read about in John chapter 3, verse 19. As the light is walking around on the earth, the world is going to consistently get more and more angry, and ultimately they hate the light so much that they're going to kill him. They're going to put him on a cross because they don't want to hear him anymore, and they don't want to see him anymore. The Greek word for witness is martis which is where the English word martyr comes from. Did you know that? 
The Greek word martis, which is the word for witness, is also where we get the word martyr. And this came to refer to those, martyr came to refer to those who die for their faith because in the early days of Christianity, to be a faithful witness often meant death. In many parts of the world, it remains the same today. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are being slaughtered by the day by Boko Haram. Those who bear witness to Jesus can expect the same kind of hostility that Jesus faced. Jesus says in John 15, 18-20 to His disciples, He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Jesus couldn't be any more clear there, could he? Bearing witness to the truth about Jesus, remember, like we said earlier, will come off as threatening to those who want to keep self on the throne of their lives. It will. Because it's, it's directly challenging that. And it's saying, you, your rightful place is not the throne. That's Jesus' rightful place. That's what we're proclaiming to people when we proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. That He's the Christ. That He's the Son of God. We're saying, you are not worthy of all praise. Jesus is worthy of all praise. As Spirit-filled Christians who walk in the light, there will be times when those who are opposed to the light will revile us, hate us, exclude us, or maybe even worse. One encouragement I want to give you is don't base the success of your evangelistic efforts on the reactions of people, okay? Sometimes, here's what I mean, sometimes believers I've talked to get discouraged, and I've, got, I've, I've experienced this too. Sometimes believers get discouraged and feel that they're doing something wrong when they receive an antagonistic response to a gospel conversation. Like it's almost like there's this visceral reaction when somebody gets upset with us or angry with us, we feel guilty, like we did something wrong. Brothers and sisters, I want to point out to you that Jesus tells us you can expect that that will happen. You're not doing something wrong. Now, you could do something wrong if your gospel presentation is more like, you know, condemning somebody and telling them how much they're how terrible they are and that, you know, they're never going to be, you know, worthy of salvation or something like that. Like you can be mean-spirited about the gospel, certainly. But if you're being a faithful witness, even being a faithful witness to the truth of the gospel, Jesus tells us, they've persecuted me and they will persecute you. So, if anything, when you receive responses like that, don't be discouraged. Remember, it just proves Scripture's point. As witnesses to the truth, we will face opposition from the world. And friends, I don't, I don't, I'm not a prophet. I don't know what the future holds. But I can tell you this, that as I observe the world around me and I observe the increasing hostility that people just have towards one another in general, uh, as I observe the increasing hostility towards uh, the gospel and towards the church in our culture, uh, I believe that days are quickly coming upon us when we're going to feel this. And it's going to become much more real to us than we've ever experienced before. We've been living in a charmed period of history, really. Uh, it's an un we, we have lived in an unprecedented time when we've had tremendous religious liberty, unlike anything the world has really ever seen before over the last couple of hundred years. And 
We just need to be reminded that's not normal for most of the world and for most of world history. We need to be aware that Jesus told us that there will be times of persecution. Paul Schneider was the first Christian martyr of the Nazi regime, the first pastor, first Christian to be killed for his faith by the Nazis. He was a pastor in Germany, and he was arrested in 1935 for preaching biblical truth, which the Nazis proclaimed as, quote, psychologically deviant. So the Nazi regime ridiculed the evangelical church. They ridiculed the Bible and God's word. And uh, eventually, they were so tired of Pastor Paul Schneider preaching the Bible that they banished him to a remote region of Germany, but he just continued preaching there as well. And though he bore witness to the goodness of the truth, the world called it evil. The Nazi regime called God's word evil. And finally, they had enough, and they arrested Paul Schneider in 1935, and Paul Schneider became prisoner, num- prisoner number 2491. Prisoner number 2491 spent two years in Buchenwald, a concentration camp, a Nazi concentration camp. Out of those 24 months in Buchenwald, 18 of those months were spent in solitary confinement because he wouldn't stop holding devotions in the barracks. He was beaten head to toe and tortured. Dogs were sicked on him. They would administer him small doses of poison so that he wouldn't die, but that he would suffer. He was beaten with bull whips. He mentioned to a, an, a, a camp aide at one point, he said, there is no spot on me that has not been beaten black and blue. Pastor Paul Schneider died at the age of 37 after two years in Buchenwald, but he never stopped bearing witness. A fellow inmate who found Paul Schneider's wife after the war recorded this in his journal about Paul Schneider. Is what he wrote. He said, every morning, every morning, Schneider's voice was heard ringing out loudly and clearly from the solitary confinement building almost across the whole square when tens of thousands had lined up for roll call. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to save us from our sins. If we have faith in him, we are put right with God. We need not fear what man may do to us because we through Christ, belong to the kingdom of God. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, has promised that we, by faith in Him, may participate in His resurrection. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me shall never die. Accept the Lord Jesus as your Savior, and God will receive you as His child. These words He continued to cry out morning after morning at roll call until they finally killed Him. But He didn't stop. Until they did. What made Paul Schneider continue bearing witness even at the cost of his life? He knew that the evidence was overwhelming. Jesus is the Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead. And Paul Schneider knew and believed that he had life in Jesus. He was not living for the praise of man or for his own glory. He knew and understood that he was created to glorify God and that it was through his glorifying God that he had life. And for the same reason, church, we too can continue to bear witness even at the cost of our lives. May we never be intimidated into silencing our witness. Amen? Amen.
I'm going to ask the uh, band is already up here. I'm going to ask the band to get ready to play. and I'm going to close this in prayer. And then as the band plays, uh, we're going to have uh, just a couple of uh, deacons and elders towards the back of the room there. If you would like to pray with somebody this morning, I would invite you uh, to go to the back of the room while we're singing and you can pray. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus before. Maybe you've never truly humbled yourself and admitted your own spiritual poverty. And this morning, you're ready to say, you know what? The only thing I bring to the, to the table of salvation is my sin. I need Jesus this morning. We would love to pray with you and walk you through that. So you can go to the back as we start to sing. Or if you just need prayer or encouragement, we would love to pray with you. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you, oh God, that you have given us witness after witness, mountains of testimony that bear witness to the reality of the fact that Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. You are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through you. We worship and we exalt you this morning, Lord Jesus. You are our King. You are our Savior. You are worthy of all of our praise. The world revolves around you and not us. And we just confess that with our lips this morning. We confess with our lips that you are God and that we are your servants. We love you and we worship you. I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never admitted their own spiritual poverty, admitted their own need, who've been trying to hold it together, trying to, to keep that pride up, that, oh God, that it would just burst like a dam, God, that it would that, that pride would come crashing down, that, God, you would grant them the gift of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth right now this morning by the power of your Spirit. God, do what only you can do and save sinners this morning. Save those who are lost. And encourage your people, oh God. Encourage them with just the rock-solid evidence and witnesses that point to the truth of the gospel that we proclaim. God, give us the faith of Paul Schneider. May we love you more than our own lives, just like Pastor Paul Schneider did. We worship you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing, and you can go and make your way to the back as you feel led to respond to the message this morning.